Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Morning. How's everybody? You guys doing okay? Do me a favor, just in case you're in a really weird place, turn to your neighbor, make eye contact, just smile for one second. Say hi, wink, peck on the cheek, whatever feels right. All right. Let's be at church together, all right? Amen? Well, this morning, we're going to pick up the Sermon on the Mount, this great sermon that Jesus gave, and he's going to talk about a topic probably very near and dear to a lot of hearts, and that's the topic of worry, worry. Just a quick poll to start things off, show of hands. How many of you would say you wrestle with worry? There's a tendency or proneness to worry. It's okay, just raise your hand. All right, all right. that's very common. It's actually very common. And I would say that in many respects, worry is actually a sign of sanity and clarity. It's a sign that you're actually paying attention because if you can live in our world today and never feel worry creeping in, you're just not paying attention, I think. I mean, there's a lot to worry about in our world. Worry is a very common and in many ways a very normal response to this life. But it can get to a point where it becomes destructive and paralyzing and then moves us from weakness and burden to the realm of sin and rebellion against God. It can drive a wedge between us and our Savior. And so we, we want to acknowledge that worry is a normal experience in human life. It's even a sign that you have clarity about what's happening. But we want to make sure that we hear the word of Christ with respect to worry, because if we get that wrong, it could cost us a great deal in our spiritual journey. Uh, The earth-shattering title I've given to this is Rising Above Worry, but there's a reason I've chosen to call it that. Rather than just escaping worry or forgetting worry or denying worry, I think what Jesus calls us to is to rise above it. And guys, if you could steer the slides, I actually think I'm going to read out of the paper Bible up here today. I'm just feeling a little in an old school mood. I think it was was that hymn that we sang. That's the hymn that I heard every morning for about an hour when I was a little baby. My grandmother held me on her back and walked around the, the courtyard in our house in Korea singing that song in Korean over and over and over. It's what I associate with love and care and peace. And so I want to read from my paper Bible. You guys know these things still exist. They're really incredible. Here's Here's what Jesus has to say about worry. That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear, isn't life more than food, and your body, more than clothing. Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, 
for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? So don't worry about these things, saying what will we eat and what will we drink, what will we wear. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. It's the word of our Savior, and it's important to get tone right. If you misunderstand the tone with which someone is saying a thing, you could take a whole different meaning. That's why text messaging is so inferior to that little app on your phone called the phone. I don't even know why we call them phones anymore. Nobody ever uses it as a phone. But sometimes when you send a text, you can't hear tone. And you're not sure if the person writing is being sarcastic or attacking or they sincerely mean what they've written. What is Jesus saying here and how is he saying it? What tone would he have taken? And I think at this point in his sermon... He wouldn't be bombastic. He wouldn't be loud. He wouldn't be in your face. I think his tone would have changed to tenderness. I don't believe that Jesus is telling us to stop worrying from a place of rebuke or frustration or anger. How many of you know that you cannot command anxiety out of a person? Any more than you can command fear out of someone. If you have small children and they're afraid of something, let me just be very transparent. When I was little, I was terrified of dogs. It wouldn't matter how big a dog it was. It could be a chihuahua, and I'm up there on a table looking down like it's Cujo. There's a dated reference. I was terrified of dogs, and it wouldn't matter how big the dog was. And when my mom said, stop being so afraid... She couldn't command the fear out of me. I wish she could. God knows it was embarrassing being a a boy and being afraid of chihuahuas. It's very emasculating. And if somehow this debilitating weakness, this handicap I was saddled with could just go away because someone said, stop being afraid. I'm like, okay. (laughs) I'm glad someone finally said it. Here I was wasting my whole life scared. And now you just told me and it's over. I wish it worked like that. But it doesn't, does it? Neither does worry go away just because you say to somebody, stop worrying so much. How many of you are guilty of saying that to somebody? (laughs) Come on, stop worrying so much. Negative Nancy. Sorry if your name is Nancy. Nancy, I, I don't know why we use that name, but stop being so gloomy, Gus. I wish... 
it could happen that way. But Jesus is a realist, and he understood that worry and anxiety exist for a reason. They are a sane response to something in the real world. And so rather than saying simply, stop worrying, he says, listen, here's why I'm telling you, you don't have to worry about these things. I want to give you some reasons why worrying is an unnecessary burden. And it's something your heavenly father acknowledges and he wants to take away from you because that worry is like a weight on you and over time it will rob you of some of the best things in life and it'll eventually drive a wedge between you and other people and it'll drive a wedge between you and God. And so he proceeds in these words to unfold several reasons why we don't need to worry. Why we can let go of that burden and know that we're actually free of it. Now, I'm just going to tell you right off the bat, if you're looking for some earth-shattering, clever thing, you're going to be disappointed. But I can also tell you that for some of us, worry has eaten to the core like a worm. And what once started as worry and fear and anxiety has given way to a coldness, a cynicism, a bitterness, so that it may be very difficult for you to receive these words. We've been praying for you. And I want you to know that Jesus wants you to hear these words in the spirit of an invitation because he wants to free you of that giant rock that's just been sitting on your heart. The things he gives here are very simple, but if you will open your heart to receive them, I think you'll find that they are more profound, deeper than they appear to be at first. So the first thing he gives us is he basically says, don't worry because God is able to take care of you. And he directs our attention to the birds. He says, you want a good illustration of how God can take care of you? Look at the birds. How many of you are bird watchers? Anyone? All right. All right. I'm not. I can't imagine becoming one. But birds are interesting creatures. If you just look out your office window and watch birds, are birds lazy? No, they're not. They are like the most frenetic, hyperactive, busy little things. They're always... You know, they're just constantly moving. They're looking. They're pecking, foraging. They never sit still. Among all of nature's creatures, I think birds are among the most diligent, hardworking creatures that God ever made. But it occurs to me as I read Jesus' words that birds are 100% dependent on found food. He says, look, birds don't exactly engage in agriculture. They, They don't farm They don't produce food out of the earth, and they don't stockpile for a rainy day. Even insects do a better job of that than birds. Birds are, I think they may be postmodern people. They they live only in this moment (laughs) for today. As long as they eat now, life is good. Tomorrow, I don't know. I'll run around pecking and looking, and and it's it's a miracle because if you think about the birds... Even though they are busy all day long, it wouldn't make a lick of difference if there were no food to be found. 
You can search all day, but unless something is there, you will starve. 100% dependent on found food. In the fields just west of our neighborhood, every year, the starlings migrate. And they, have you seen this near your house? Did anybody else have this by your house? Maybe it's because I live out in the countryside, man. We, we have farms, and a, a, there's a dairy farm right next to Elijah's high school. I mean, it's, you literally have to drive past cows to get to his school. I feel like we live in East Texas or something. And every year, these starlings come in massive swarms, and they look like locusts coming in to attack. And I almost got into a car accident one because I'm just looking at the murmurations of these clouds, and it's so mesmerizing. Now, imagine if someone succeeded in capturing all those birds, bringing them into a building, and said to you, now, your job is to make sure all these birds eat. I tell you right now, that would be a massive undertaking. It would overwhelm me. I'm like, how do you feed a gazillion birds? And if I decided to take that on myself and focus on that problem, it would very quickly destroy me. But somehow left out in the wild, untended, unsupported, unkept, they managed to eat every single day. I get stressed out thinking, how do all those birds eat? How many worms could there be in the world? How many seeds could fall? And imagine the competition in that swarm of birds. And yet, every single day they eat, and they live, and they move on to another day. And what Jesus says is, look at these birds that nobody takes care of, no one claims, no one owns, and God, every day, makes sure that they stay alive and there's something for them to find. And the illustration basically is this. If you stare only at your need and your problems, you will very quickly get overwhelmed. You will look at the immensity of the need. I need to go back to school, but I have to support my family. And tuition's expensive. And there's no way I can afford it. And the more you look at what you need to do or want to do and what you have, the gap between where you want to go and what you need to have is so great, you become defeated. You're overwhelmed. How am I going to do this? It doesn't seem possible to get there from here. This becomes especially problematic when the source of our anxiety is not a situation or economics, but another person who has a huge power over our heart. It's terrifying to love someone because the minute you do so, you give them the keys to your heart and they could crush you like this. And you cannot control what they do with your heart. I wish we could, but I cannot control what a person does when I entrust my heart to them. And it's scary to leave that much power in the hands of another person. And when we look at the problem and we look at our limited ability to control how our life turns out, it becomes overwhelming. And you can start to believe the lie that there is no way forward. No one can help me. There's no way. And we start using words like impossible. Impossible. Now, so far, everything I've said, Tony Robbins could have said. Here's the difference. When we hit that wall, we don't dig deeper into our humanity and say, yes, you can. I think the sanest response is, go, I'm worried because, no, I can't. I can't. I have done everything I can. If there were any way 
to move forward a little further, I would have done it, but I've hit my wall and I can't. And the reason I'm worried is because it still matters to me, but I've done all I can and it's not enough. And what Jesus says is, look at the birds, because when you start thinking there's no way, remember this. Every time you're at that wall, there's a God who is with you and for you. And this God who is with you and who is for you can do anything. Sometimes when I'm asked as a pastor to come to a hospital room, and pray for someone who's very sick. I got to pause before I walk in because I know what the situation is. There are people who are heartbroken and terrified, and they're at their wits end realizing they cannot control what happens here. The doctors can't comfort us. The news they've given is devastating. Can you please come and ask God to heal our loved one? So I know what, how they're looking at me, what is expected of me. And it's a lot of pressure and it gets very overwhelming. So before I walk into the hospital room, what I have to do is always, I just pause and go, okay. I'm about to ask God to heal a person miraculously. And I've seen him do it. If you have any doubts about God's still being in the healing business, let's talk. I'll, sh- I'll share stories. I've seen him do it. I've experienced it in my own body. But before I ask, will you heal, I have to have a moment to establish in my own heart, can he heal? I mean, do I truly believe as I'm walking in that room that I serve a God who can knock this disease right out of the room? That the only question is if, it, if he will do it, if he will receive greater glory by doing it. There cannot be a question of can he do it. Before we ask God, will you, we have to believe he can. And if I wait until a moment of crisis to establish whether or not I believe in a God who is able, I will not see the God who is able. So here's what Paul says. He writes to the Philippians, and look what he says. He says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Don't you like that? It's so simple. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. And that word is very expansive. What he means is there's nothing too trivial to enter into your conversation with God. He actually cares about the trivia in your life. Tell God what you need. And here's a very important part. Thank him for all he has done. This is how we develop a view of the God who is able is that on a regular daily basis, everything that crosses our hearts, we bring to him like a father from a child's heart. We say, Daddy, this is on my mind. I'm just going to bring this because I don't know who else is in charge. I'm going to bring this to you. And each time he answers my prayer, I will pause and acknowledge what he's done. I will commemorate. I will document. I will establish in my history that God did this thing And in this small matter, he attended to me. He heard me. He was faithful. And so the next time a big thing rises up, I will remember the God who in a thousand small, trivial, superficial things attended to my life and show that he was able. 
And he says, if you do that, if you combine constant prayer with moments of real gratitude, then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Now, I know people debate ad nauseum about whether God actually answers prayer or we ascribe coincidence and natural causes to God. Whatever. There's no way to prove it was God or it was just happenstance. But I know this. If I just simply go, well, it was going to happen anyway. I live in a cold, faceless universe in which hope is insanity. What's the point of living in that universe? You could choose to live there. But man, how dark it's got to be in that room. I can't prove to you that yesterday... When Jeannie called me from New York City, I mean, Jeannie's in New York right now. I've been on my own with the kids since Thursday, and will be until Tuesday. And I appreciate her so much. And she she called me and said, hey, so I've been waiting in line for like a few hours. We're trying to get tickets to this Broadway show because she's visiting one of her best friends out there. Her friend never saw the show, but tickets in New York on Broadway are insane right now. They're like $700,000. There's no way. That's like marriage-ending kind of expense there. So she's she's waiting the cancellation line, hoping to get some last-minute cancellations, so like $100. But it's a gamble because you wait hours, and you have no guarantee that those hours are going to be justified. So she's drawing to the end of the time, and she's still got like 10 people ahead of her. She's like, oh, it's not looking good. I don't know. Hours spent here, and I just felt the weight of it because she gets away so rarely. I just hated the idea that my wife would have spent hours, and she's going to be disappointed. It just bothered me. So before I, was, I got in the car, I just stood in my garage and said, God, please just, I know it's such a small, stupid, trivial thing, but please let her get that ticket. Just let her. And as I'm backing out of the garage, in like the next 10 seconds, she texts me and goes, I got the tickets. And I was like, right on, God. Now, a cynic would have said, you're probably going to get the tickets anyway. It just happened to be really good timing. <laughs> All right, okay. But you know what? I actually believe in God. I haven't proven God. I choose to believe in God. And as I think about a God who has my back, it really builds my faith. And you could say you're, dis- you're constructing your own faith. That's what we all do. Every day we, be- we construct our faith in something. Some picture of reality that we build into every day by choice. We choose a perspective. I'll look at it this way, or I'll look at it this way. And I choose to look at it as a God who has my back, who is real and who listens to what I say, and he has me in his hand, and there's nothing so trivial. He wouldn't say, Dave, don't worry about it. I got you. Don't you love when one of your friends, you look as you're nervous, and they're like, I got you. And you're like, oh, man. It feels so good to have a friend who's got me. And the thing about it is, the more we bring every small thing to him each day and watch as he's faithful, and this is the important part, we pause each time and we commemorate and we acknowledge and we express gratitude. It's so important. Because you see, the opposite of worry is trust. And if we're going to build trust in a person, we have to actively look for their trustworthiness. And every time we find it, we have to celebrate it. 
This morning, as we were in our prayer circle at 945, all are welcome. Stan prayed something that really just jarred me. He said, thank you just for this high school. I was like, dang, that's very profound because uh, it just occurred to me as he was praying that that when it comes to facilities, yes, we are actively, actively looking for a building right now. But like a bird, we can forage all day long, but unless a building shows up, we're not going to get one. When it comes to buildings, we are beggars at the mercy of others. And we don't have very many options in this town. And yet somehow, since 2009, God has consistently opened the doors to this building and to a wonderful team who really cares about our church. The folks here are unbelievably accommodating and generous to us. And on the weeks where they can't open their doors to us, District 54 opens their door to us. And we have yet to have a day where we just can't have church because there's no place to go. We're like Joseph and Mary every week. And there's always room at the inn. And I just think about something as simple as this building, which we count on and take for granted, and the fact that every single week, God delivers this place to us. And I was just filled with gratitude over something so mundane so simple, and it reminded me that this church exists not because the staff work hard or because our volunteers work hard, but because God has always watched over this church. He has loved this church from the start. I'll give you a second thing. Jesus says, here's another reason not to worry. You don't have to worry because not only is God able to take care of you, but God loves you very much. Can I just pause? This is such an old truth. You just, you're just like, yeah, yeah, he loves me. Listen, God loves you very much. The journey of the Christian life is not to plumb the depths of new thoughts, but to lay hold of this simple old thought again and again until you believe it in your heart, because this is the greatest truth ever. And if you miss this, it won't matter what else you know about this religion. The deepest truth for the Christian heart is simply this. Your Father in heaven loves you very much. He loves you more than you love yourself. He loves you more than you could dare to imagine anyone could really love the true you. Pointing to the birds again, he points this out so explicitly. He says, look, do you have any idea how much more God values you than he values those birds? What's a stupid bird in a flock of a million birds? Why should the God of the universe care whether that bird eats or lives or dies? It's immaterial. That bird is a pixel on a screen. Nothing. And yet this God breathes life into that little bird's little bird lungs every second. Why? And if he does it for that bird, what what he says to you and me is, do you have any idea how much more I value you than that bird? Let me ask you a question. Have any of you been in a place of distress, of darkness, of being far from God, 
and someone came up to you and said, very well-intentioned, you know that God loves you. Maybe it's happening right now. I'm saying it to you. And as you hear the words, your brain acknowledges them, but the truth is your heart is left numb and kind of cold. You hear the words, God loves you, and your response emotionally is, "Uh, I guess, yeah, if you say so. I know what that feels like. I've been there. Please keep coming to church, even though your pastor just said that. But I've been there, honestly. I've had people say to me, God loves you, and I just think, okay, that's the best you got. Come on, tell me something else. I don't feel like he loves me. And And when that happens to us, there's a very good chance that the problem lies not in God's demonstration of love, but that we've been looking for love in all the wrong places. So saith the great Lionel Richie, we might be looking for love. And all. Is that who sang it? I don't know. It's Buck, Buckwheat sang it. I know that, right? Wookin' Penub. Listen, imagine a young man frustrated because he loves his wife from the depths of his heart. He has loved her since the day he laid eyes on her, but for all his efforts, he just cannot provide her with very much in terms of material blessing. He bought her the best ring he could afford. He threw her the best wedding party he could afford. He bought her the finest home he could afford. But in the end, as she looked around at what all her friends had, what the world said she needed to have, she just was left feeling very undervalued, left feeling very wanting. And imagine the heartache for this young man as she looked at him every day and said, but if you really loved me, I'd have a bigger home. If you really loved me, I'd have finer clothes. If you really loved me, you'd take me out on the town more often. If you really loved me, we'd go and travel the world and see the wonders it has to offer. And imagine the heartache as he says, I would give you every last one of those things if you could, but if that's where you're looking for my love, you won't find it there. You won't find my love for you in the house we have or the clothes in your closet or the stamps in your passport. That's not where you look for my love. And I can picture this young man cupping his hands around her face and gently drawing her in and saying, look, you want to find my love? Open up that box full of letters. Every page I poured my heart into every single word. They tell you what my heart is for you. You want to find my love? Think about the day that I knelt by your bedside, holding your hand, crying out to God until your fever broke. When I find my love for you, look into my eyes, look at my face, hear my voice as I tell you, there is nothing I would not do for you. I love you from the depths of my heart, and you're not going to know that by looking at our house or at anything else. You're going to know that by looking at me. Listen to what I say to you. I think that same dynamic plays out very often between us and God. Does God love me? Well, I don't know. My life is a clogged toilet right now. I wish there was a life plunger because it's nothing. Everything that could go wrong has gone wrong. Does God love me? 
I don't know. And I say to you on behalf of a God who loves you, don't look at that mess and try to find the love of God. You won't find it there. Search the pages of the words he wrote and look for his heart. Look back beyond the mess before when he introduced himself to you at the thousands and thousands of instances where he was gracious and kind. Where you received mercy you didn't have coming. And every now and then, do this. Sit quietly in a room and just say, God, tell me how you feel about me. Do you know we don't do that with people we love? We, we assume so much, but we never really pause and invite the words. If you're married or you're in a serious relationship, when's the last time you just looked into your partner's face and said, tell me again, tell me again how much you love me? You're like, ew, what? Do you know what power there is in that simple act? Because if you don't do that, you will start looking for proof of love in all the places where love doesn't really live. Do you know how much power there is in looking into the face of the person who says they love you? And as they speak the words, every one of us has a built-in polygraph. And when someone really loves us and they look us in the eye and they say it, we know. But we rarely invite the words. A couple weeks ago, I was on an island sitting on a dock, swinging my legs. There was a seal swimming around to my left. And I was looking ahead at this, across the bay at this snow-capped mountain, Whistler, off in the distance. And I just tried it. I said, God, tell me again how you feel about me. I wasn't expecting very much, and it doesn't happen every time. I guarantee you that. But I felt just wrapped up in the love of God. I think that goes a long way to explaining why I was so tender-hearted and emotionally fragile as I came back from that trip. I felt something, but I think an important step was just pausing to ask him for what I longed to feel. I asked him to tell me, to make me feel it, and I, he, he gave me that gift. And I want to encourage you to do that. But let me take that one step further because we don't find love with God the same way a lover finds love from another human lover. It transcends even that. God has done something to prove his love that no one else ever has. The greatest proof of the love of God is found in these simple familiar words, for God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son. The greatest proof of the love of God is not whether my life is going well or poorly, but it is in the person of Jesus Christ and the forever established historic reality of what he's done for all of us and what he did for me. One of my favorite things we do when I mentor at the Arrow Leadership Program is this crazy man named Lon Allison from Wheaton comes and he teaches how to present the gospel to someone, but he says it's not just some sales pitch or a four-law tract Here's what it is. It's telling your story of how Jesus broke into your life. And so he has all 24 leaders in this class 
prepare a three-minute gospel story of how Jesus broke into their lives. And I thought, oh, Lord, it's going to be so boring. 24 times hearing the same story. I was lost, Jesus, honey, yada, yada, yada. I was getting ready to fall asleep, and then it starts. And every time this happens at Arrow, I'm blown away. It's the most emotionally enriching day for me because it's like a cut diamond with a thousand angles and facets. As I hear these Jesus stories, I'm hearing 24 unbelievable human stories where against all gods, this Jesus broke through. And I experience the same thing every time I share my Jesus story. And my Jesus story is not particularly dramatic, but it's mine. And every time I share it, I remember what it felt like that day when Jesus finally broke through. And if I'm ever struggling to find the love of God, that's the best place to go. It's to the day when Jesus broke through, because there is no greater sign of the love of God than that he provided Jesus for you and me. I hope that's a sentence that, though it doesn't strike your heart now, will keep on giving all week as the Holy Spirit reminds you. And if you're struggling to see it, I want to encourage you to just for a second hit the pause button on the clogged toilet of your present life. And travel back in time to the first time you had clarity on what Jesus really did for you. And I want you to write out that story and retell it and relive it. And I want you to think about how much that demonstrates the love of God the Father for you. Let me give you one last thing here. Jesus says, don't worry about stuff like food and drink and clothes because life is so much more than food and clothing. If you like food and clothing, if you find yourself at the mall when you're not at work, that's not great news, but (laughs) I, I think it is wonderful news that life is so much more than what I eat and what I drink and what I wear. Imagine a young man packing for a long trip to Europe. It's his first visit, and he's just freaking out. And for weeks, he obsesses over what clothing to bring, what gear to pack. He packs, unpacks, repacks his suitcase a hundred times. Some of you are like that before a trip. You're just cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs about what you're going to bring because you don't want to leave something behind. And he focuses so much, and finally, the day before the trip, his suitcases are fully packed. He's, all his checklists are done, and he's like, I got everything I need. And a friend goes, awesome. Hey, when you get there, what are you going to do? Oh, I haven't really given that very much thought. I've been so obsessed over my luggage over the gear I might need, I haven't thought about the greater story that I'm going to Europe, and when I land at the airport, I don't have a single darn plan. All dressed up, nowhere to go. I don't know about you, but that sounds really dumb to me. It it, it sounds really like you missed the whole boat. And Jesus says, look, I know that food, and he doesn't ever disparage our concern about these things. He understands that if you don't eat, you die. If you don't drink, you die. 
without clothing, you're going to be very embarrassed before you die. All of this is necessary. He doesn't ever say, shame on you for caring about this. I care about it. I know you care about it. But what he says is, don't you know that this life is so much more than those things? Those things matter, but this life is so much more than that. And so what he says next is, Seek the kingdom of God and live righteously above all other things. Here's what he's doing here. He's saying that if you live only in this realm of food and drink and clothing, you will obsess over it. It will dominate your life. And you will find yourself worrying about whether you have enough food or whether you've experienced the best food. There's a dish out there so delicious and I haven't eaten it yet and it haunts me. There's existential FOMO about all the good things in life that others have experienced, which you have not yet. And so you keep lists on your phone of places you got to eat, things you got to buy, though, complete your wardrobe, and you obsess over them. And if you live in that realm, that's the way a lot of people live. And he says, that's okay. But man, there's this whole other layer of what's going on that you'll miss out on. So he says, stop going in circles in this destructive kind of worry, worrying about things that don't need to be worried about, and instead trade in that destructive worry for a redemptive worry. When he says, seek first the kingdom of God, that word seek first is a very intense word. You know, when you're seeking, think of it this way. If you lose your child at Great America, terror of terrors, right? That's the one place you don't want to lose your kid. And you're like, where's, where's Zoe? Where, she was just here. You don't go, I don't know. I'm sure she'll pop up. Is that Zoe? No, that's not Zoe. You wouldn't be waiting in line on, on a Superman ride. Going, I think I, no, that's not Zoe. That's, seeking is... Everything else is dropped. You're on a hunt. You've got to find her. That's what seeking feels like. That's what seeking looks like. What Jesus says is we spend so much time in fruitless cycles of worry about things that don't deserve that much time and attention. And he's inviting us to be freed from that small world and says, if you want to worry, I want you to worry, but worry about things worth worrying about. Obsess over things worth obsessing over. Look around you at the world and realize millions are perishing with no hope because they don't know Jesus. Worry about the fact that millions live on the fringes of society, voiceless, powerless, overlooked, invisible. Worry about the fact that we're destroying this little rock we live on all the time. Worry about things worth worrying about. Because as what you worry about is what you will pursue with all of your heart. And he says, don't worry about things like food and drink. I got you. You will always eat. You will always drink. And when you can't, I will give you strength to endure it until that season passes. If you're going to worry, worry about stuff that really matters. Jesus says, don't worry about these petty things. And look what he says. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. 
I'm a little embarrassed to admit it, but I, I have this app called Flipboard that just aggregates news stories. Okay, all kinds of news stories from all over the internet and puts them into a little custom magazine for me and I flip through and read the stories. And one of the stories that popped up on my feed, I'm not sure why, was from GQ.com. And it was a story about how Kit Harrington, who plays Jon Snow on Game of Thrones, if you've been tuned out this whole sermon, I got you now, right? I mean, it said... Kit Harrington was found running errands in London and gasped. He was wearing skinny jeans, but he had all these bulky items in his front pockets. Ooh, no! <laughs> Serious fashion faux pas. You could see the, the rectangular bulge of his phone and then something mysterious, lumpy, like maybe keys in his right pocket. Shame on you, Kit Harrington. And here, this is why I'm embarrassed to admit it. My first reaction is, oh, Lord, I do that. Uh, some of my pants actually have a rectangular imprint that's lighter in the fabric because my phone's always right there. And I thought, oh, maybe I should stop. And then I, I pause and go, Lord, help me. <laughs> Deliver me from a world where this triviality actually matters to anyone. Are you serious? My God. And I, I was so broke. I was like, I can't believe my first reaction was, oh, Lord, should I stop? Where do I put my phone? Do I need to get a man purse? Because these things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. And because it is the boundary of the world in which people outside of God's kingdom live, they take it to the umpteenth degree. They take what is important, they make it all important. And we join them so often down that slippery slope. And Jesus invites us to wake up from our days. It says, join me in a world filled with things that actually matter. Every day, what's allowed and not allowed in fashion changes. Every day, new restaurants pop up. Every day, this or that. And none of it, in the end, matters quite so much as the world around us would lead us to believe. And when he says, seek first my kingdom, what he says is, realign your whole life around the will of my God, my, my heavenly Father, God in heaven. Make that your obsession. And in doing so, he will free you from a life spent toiling and agonizing and obsessing over things that are so small that God will just give them to you without a thought. Let me just bring this message in for a landing. When our lives are rooted to the kingdom of this world, to things like what we eat and drink and wear, it's inevitable that eventually we will begin to, to worry about the length of our lives. In fact, I just bought a book this week, coincidentally, called The Worm at the Core. <laughs> Just a title grabbed me when it showed up on one of my, my blog feeds. It's written by three psychology professors who argue this, that the subconscious and conscious fear of death drives everything we do as human beings. I thought, I don't agree, but I got to read this. But I think there's some truth to what they're saying. 
that the idea that we all will die is a haunting reality we have to live with. And when I was younger, I was like, whatever, death is like a million years away. Later this month, I will turn 50, and I don't feel that way anymore. The honest truth is, I am now a person with more life behind me than in front of me, and I know it. I know it. And every now and then, that sobering reality, just like a splash of cold water, says, wow, my days really are numbered. And that reality can lead some to obsess in anxiety and worry and fear. It could lead others to try to run hard and fast and squeeze every pleasure out of this short run. But Jesus says, can all that worrying add a single moment to your life? Can you live one second longer because you fretted over the length of your days? And in fact, maybe therein lies the heart of the problem, is that we obsess over how long we will live when that's not even the most interesting thing about our lives. Everyone's assigned a number of days, and you will live them out fully, and then you will stop living on this planet. And the real question is not how long you lived, how many days you were granted, or how well-clothed, how well-fed, how well-watered you were along the way. The real question is whether along the way you lived a meaningful life. You lived for something worth living for. I welcome that splash of cold water now. I will admit to you that at first when I realized I have more past than future, anxiety welled up. But it's given way to something else, and I thank God for it. It's reminded me that every day is a gift and I can't presume upon tomorrow. And it does drive me on a regular basis to live a more meaningful now. And I want to encourage you, as you struggle with worry, to hear the invitation of Jesus to rise out of a world where these days are all that matter. Whether being watered and fed and clothed is all that matters. Here is invitation to live for something much better than that. And in following his invitation to become free of the petty world that has only those things, to rise above that and to experience a freedom from worry because your life is so much more than what you eat and what you wear. I want to encourage you, if you, and praise team, you can make your way on up now. I want to encourage you, if you wrestle with worry, to just bow with me right now, and let's just pray together. If you don't wrestle at all with worry, just maybe pray that if you're asleep, God will wake you up. And if you're in a good place, pray for others around. I'm becoming convinced that all anger in this world, all hatred in this world, ultimately is born out of fear. Because we're proud, 
in our fear, we don't cry out for comfort. We just wait to see if comfort comes. And when it doesn't, our fear morphs into anger and hatred. It's okay to be afraid. It's okay to look at a foggy, unknown future and say, I don't know what's coming. I can't even control it. It's okay to acknowledge that there's a person in my life who means so much to me and they're breaking my heart and I can't stop it from happening. But in that place of fear, know this, you have a Father in heaven who has your back and who loves you more than you can ever imagine. And you're not hopeless and you're not by yourself in that place. And as long as he lives, there can be tomorrow. If you're wondering if God loves you, don't look at your life. Look at Him. Because life is full of ups and downs. God knows that I have not been able to protect the people I love from pain. But not once do we stop loving those people, even when we don't make their pain go away. And if you've lost your connection to that God, that's the way ahead for you. That's where you're going to find your peace. So I want to invite you, wherever you find yourself this morning, just pause in quiet and let's respond to God in our own voice. And then the praise team will lead us in one final song. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.